Good evening, and welcome to Burlington City Hall, the scene of many exciting adventures. Uh, during the last couple of years, uh, we have had a number of prominent and important spokespeople uh, come to Burlington, Vermont. And tonight, we're very proud to welcome Noam Chomsky from MIT, who has been a very vocal and important voice in the wilderness of intellectual life in America. Uh, at a time when many intellectuals and academicians find it more comfortable to be silent and to go with the flow, as it were, it is comforting to find, on occasion, individuals who have the guts to speak out uh, about the important uh, issues of our time, and certainly Professor Chomsky has been a person to do it. I am particularly delighted to welcome him here to City Hall, because one of the things that we are trying to do in Burlington is to do away with this gap between what happens up there on the hill and what happens down here, or what presumably happens in Washington regarding Nicaragua, and what happens here in local government. We have the belief here that local government is everything that affects human life. And last night, I was very proud that the Board of Aldermen, by an 8-3 to three vote, approved the resolution supporting opposition to President Reagan's embargo to Nicaragua. the view was that what happens in Nicaragua, what happens in Washington, what is done in the name of the United States of America is done in all of our names, and it is absolutely a local issue. So without saying more, uh, without going any longer, I am delighted to welcome uh, a person uh, who I think we're very, all very proud of, Professor Noam Chomsky. States is quite unusual among industrial democracies in a number of respects. Uh, one of them, one of the most obvious, uh, simply has to do with uh, uh, ordinary political participation. So, for example, as, as measured, say, in voting in uh, presidential elections, uh, the United States is remarkably low among comparable societies in the level of political participation. And a, a more interesting feature of that is the following. If you look at the non-voters, in the United States. They're socioeconomically identifiable pretty well. Uh, they are essentially the kind of people who in some European society would vote for one of the labor-based parties, uh, either labor or socialist or communist, all of which are essentially kind of reformist labor-based parties that have a labor constituency and work for them in one fashion or another. By and large, those people don't vote here. Uh, among the unemployed, for example, in the last election, only a third voted. Uh, and if you uh, look at the statistics, you find this quite general and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, well, evidently those people regard themselves as disenfranchised. They don't see any point in voting for what amounts to one of the two uh, branches of the Tory party, uh, there being none that, uh, is, that has them as its constituency. There are other respects in which one finds this kind of particularity of the United States. So, for example, just a couple of days ago there was an article in the Boston Globe, my 
hometown, where they referred to Howard Zinn, an old friend of mine. There was an article about him and the way he was censored at BU. And it referred to him there as an avowed socialist, kind of with a gasp, you know, as if sort of like an avowed murderer or something. He actually says it and so on. Well, again, in Europe, that would just be comical. You know, you couldn't refer to anybody as an avowed socialist as if that were something surprising. Or in the media in the United States, as far as I know, there isn't a single columnist or reporter, for that matter, who either would identify himself as sort of a mainstream socialist or, if he would, would be willing to allow it to be known. And again, in Europe, that's just inconceivable. It's unimaginable. All of this reflects a kind of an ideological uniformity and rigidity in the United States, which is striking and is a kind of a counterpart to the lack of the absence in the political system of any organization that represents the interests of poor or disadvantaged or working people. One of the best young scholars of American political history, Tom Ferguson, has pointed out in a recent very important study of American political history that political parties in the United States are, I'm quoting now, blocks of major investors who coalesce to advance candidates representing their interests. The real market for political parties is not voters, but rather major investors who generally have good and clear reasons for investing to control the state. And correspondingly, in federal elections, lots of people whose interests are not those of those groups of investors either don't vote or also, if you look, they also tend to vote contrary to their interests, contrary to their political commitments, as many detailed studies have shown. So, for example, in the last election of Reagan voters, who were a small minority of the electorate, about two-thirds said that they hoped that his policies weren't enacted. What that reflects a kind of rational understanding of the political system. It reflects the understanding that the choices are sort of between Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola. You're effectively disenfranchised anyway, so you might as well vote for the guy who makes you feel good. The policies are not going to change all that much. Maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it reflects a certain perception and understanding of political reality. Well, these are some of many indications of what is, in fact, a rather striking property, striking fact about the United States, namely, again, differentiating it from other similar societies. In the United States, there's an extraordinarily high degree of class consciousness on the part of the privileged classes, on the part of business professionals, the elite intellectuals who associate themselves with privilege and power. In those groups, there's a very high, unusually high degree of class consciousness, which manifests itself in lots of ways. And correspondingly, there's an unusually low degree of class consciousness on the part of working people. A good deal about the United States reflects that phenomenon, which does mark this country out to a considerable extent as distinct from other similar societies. Well, one particular manifestation of this phenomenon is the public relations industry, which, again, is a peculiarly American phenomenon. It exists elsewhere, but nowhere on the scale that it does here. This goes way back in the United States. In the early part of the 20th century, it was beginning to become significant. In 1909, an AT&T executive commented that the public mind is the only serious danger confronting the company. 
and the p r this the p the p r industry public relations industry was in fact created in order to control this threat to control the public mind and prevent it from being a threat to major corporations during the first world war the government got into the act the they the government created the first major official propaganda agency it's called the creole commission its purpose was to try to to drive a general generally pacifistic population into into the european war the head of the creole commission referred to this as the world's greatest adventure in advertising and the a lesson was learned the lesson that was learned was that the government can in fact control the framework of discussion by flooding the media with so-called facts amounting to official information and also by defining the issues that are allowed to be discussed so by those means and and once that if that can be done effectively it really doesn't matter what the outcome of debate is if you can define the issues as you wish you've essentially won the battle and that lesson was learned during the war one of the one of the major members of the creole commission was a man named edward bernays who learned the lesson well he became the essentially the patron saint of the modern public relations industry its leading figure years later he wrote about what he called the engineering of consent which he described as the essence of democracy the power to persuade now he didn't go into the question of who has the power to persuade the answer is pretty obvious it's the people who own and manage the society but it's a conception of democracy which is very significant in the united states the essence of democracy is the power to persuade which is in the hands of those who essentially own and manage the private economy and that defines what democracy is long before that in fact shortly after the first world war walter lippman major american journalist had recognized the same point partly because of the experiences of the first world war he discussed in 1921 what he called the manufacture of consent which he said is an art that will cause a revolution in the practice of democracy this idea was taken up with great enthusiasm in the social sciences one of the leading american political scientists harold laswell very influential wrote an article in the encyclopedia of social science in 1933 on propaganda in which he sort of gave all of this a theoretical basis he made a distinction between democratic societies and what we nowadays we didn't use the term then would call totalitarian states and he pointed out that propaganda has a very different function in those two kinds of societies in a totalitarian state or a military society and so on propaganda isn't all that important because the state can control behavior by force but in a democratic society where the state is restricted in its ability to use force against citizens at least relatively privileged citizens who have means to defend themselves in such a society propaganda becomes much more important he pointed out and the reason is that the voice of the people is heard and therefore it's necessary to ensure that that voice says the right things that that voice says the things that the leadership regards as correct in a totalitarian society that doesn't matter so much because they're going to do what they want anyway and if you don't like it you'll suffer but in a in a the more democratic a society is the more indoctrination is needed the more you need manufacture of consent and uh laswell went on to say that we should not succumb to what he called democratic dogmatisms such as the idea that people are the best judges of their own interests that's not true 
despite mass education and so on people have no idea what their best interests are the only people who understand their best interests are the privileged elites and since we have this unfortunate phenomenon of democracy uh, we have to make sure that privileged elites are not uh, restricted in their ability to carry through the policies that are in fact in the interests of everyone uh, which means you have to have an effective system of indoctrination you have to have real manufacture of consent uh, he went on to he said that we should regard we shouldn't regard propaganda negatively he said propaganda is completely neutral he said it's as neutral as a pump handle you can use it for good or for evil and since of course we're good we're going to use propaganda for good purposes and therefore we should have a positive attitude uh, towards it it's again the essence of democracy well uh, this is a all of this is familiar in another context this is all a typical Leninist ideal uh, the Leninist concept is that the vanguard party which uh, represents and understands the interests of, uh, of the working class uh, should lead because the workers are just too stupid to understand what their own interests are. So therefore the vanguard party which will take control uh, on the basis of their revolutionary activity will lead them uh, because it understands you know, what's right and so on and so forth. And in fact the relationship between Leninist concepts and uh, uh, the liberal intelligentsia in the West is extremely close. There's a very similar managerial concept of uh, control and indoctrination. And I think this goes part of the way towards explaining why it's what a certain phenomenon which has been very common over the years, namely the very sudden and rapid shift from party loyalist to uh, uh, West American jingoist. It happens over and over again. And I think the reason it's so easy is it doesn't really require a, much of a change in political conception that re really requires a change in estimate as to where the future is, really a kind of a change in, in choice of masters uh, more than a change of ideas. Uh, well, what I want to talk about tonight is how all of this, there's a lot to say about this, but I want to drop it, the general talk there and talk about how this works out in practice. Uh, how, and I want to, let me take two current examples and if there's time go into some others because there are many. Uh, uh, one example I want to discuss is the recent uh, uh, spate of Vietnam retrospectives uh, that have appeared in all the media in the last couple of couple of weeks, uh, commemorating or I guess uh, uh, what the right word is maybe commiserating over the, the last the tenth anniversary of uh, of the departure of American troops from Vietnam. And the second case I want to discuss is current situation in Central America, which in many ways is strikingly similar, remarkably similar. Uh, to what was going on in Vietnam in the early 1960s, and that has lessons there. One of the consequences of the disparity in class consciousness, that is the high level of class consciousness among privileged elites and the very low level of class consciousness among everyone else, one of the consequences of that is that privileged elites are able to learn from history and improve their performance, whereas the rest of, the rest of us don't. Uh, because we don't learn from history and we don't have the resources to even discover what it was and in fact it's essentially eliminated down the memory hole uh, given the control over resources and I think it's important to try to overcome that so I will try to draw some parallels between these two situations as I'm sure they're being drawn in, in Washington too well let's begin with the Vietnam retrospectives uh, but let me begin first by stepping back a bit and trying out a uh, kind of a thought experiment you know an imaginary situation uh, let's imagine that the Soviet Union, after many years of fighting, uh, leaves Afghanistan, as incidentally they say they will do if what they call neutrality is guaranteed there. So suppose, in fact, they leave Afghanistan, and suppose 10 years after that, 
they have retrospective accounts in the party press what would we expect to find there and what would we expect the omitted well i think that's pretty easy what we'd expect to find is a focus on the terrorism and violence of the uh... of the uh... rebels and there'd be plenty to say about that and we'd also expect to find a focus on the misery and suffering and repression uh... in the period after the soviet union withdrew and there'd be plenty of that too when you destroy a society there's going to be plenty of suffering and mostly the brutal most brutal elements will survive and take over uh... so there'd be lots of talk about that and lots of wailing and shedding tears and so on uh... there would uh... also be talk about the noble cause of the uh... soviet union which came to the defense of the legitimate government of afghanistan against uh... terrorist bandits organized by the cia and so on and so forth uh... some things would also be omitted uh... one thing that would be sure to be omitted from these retrospective accounts would be the actual war that is what actually happened you know what were the military operations what did they do to people and so on and another thing that would be omitted certainly would be the planning that lay behind the war you know with the reasons for it, the things that led the soviet union into it well that's the end of the thought experiment now let's turn to the real world uh... and we can be rather brief because what i've just described is exactly what we've seen in the last month the, so the american media behaved exactly in the way we would expect the well-disciplined uh, party press to behave in the soviet union or any other totalitarian state uh... a number of things were omitted in fact exactly the ones i described and a number of things were focused on exactly the ones i described let's look a little more carefully one thing that was omitted virtually totally in the media was the war against south vietnam american in fact there it isn't even known in the united states that there was an american war against south vietnam the only thing that exists in american history is the american defense of south vietnam that's our way of referring to the fact that we attacked and practically destroyed south vietnam i'll come back to that later uh... but the actual not only uh, was was it is the concept missing but there was no description of it so if you read time newsweek uh, new york times wall street journal you know down the list uh... you'll find strikingly missing the actual war no description of the ground operations of the bombing and so on and so forth. The only exception that I saw in a review of all the media on this was uh, two pages in Newsweek by uh, Ron Moreau and Tony Clifton, which in fact referred to the fact that there was a war there and described some of its consequences. So that was missing. Another thing that was missing was any discussion of the background planning for the war, the reasons why the United States got into it. There's a ton of documentation on this. This is a very open society, and we have plenty of access to high-level planning documents. And there's a, it's, it's very well understood, in fact, if you want to bother understanding what led the United States into the war, but that was missing, down the memory hole, not a mention of it, not, I, I didn't even see a word of that. What you found instead was something different. What you read was uh, that uh, the war was uh, a mistake, but a noble mistake, that it was uh, illusory, it was a failed crusade undertaken with the loftiest intentions, these incidentally are the phrases used by Stanley Carnot in the uh, best-selling companion volume to the PBS television series, which is uh, uh, highly praised or criticized for its critical candor and which, in fact, is now the subject of a right-wing attack, which will soon be aired because it was only obedient to this party line and not sufficiently servile to it. So there <laughs> we read that we started with the loftiest intentions and failed crusade. No evidence is given to testify that. No evidence is offered to suggest that we had lofty intentions or anything else. That's just party line. I mean, you don't need evidence for that. Or you read that we entered because of, I'm quoting now, blundering efforts to do good 
although this became a disaster by 1969. That's Anthony Lewis, who is, I think, the harshest critic critic of the war in the American press. Or you read that uh, we entered in an excess of righteousness and disinterested benevolence, uh, uh, and that our defense of South Vietnam was badly conceived. That's John King Fairbank, uh, who's the leading American Asia scholar and about the harshest critic of the war in American foreign policy you could find in, in anything close to mainstream academic circles, and on and on like that. Uh, you'll notice that everybody's been quoting as a critic. These are all the critics of American policy. The spectrum of opinion extends from them, you know, from the idea that we entered in an excess of righteousness and disinterested benevolence over to Norman Podhoretz and Ronald Reagan. That's the spectrum. If you've got a magnifying glass, you can actually see that there's something in between. <laughs> and that's, that's important. It's very important to notice that this is what the critics say. And it's also important to notice that none of this has to be justified. That is, nobody who puts forth these views gives any evidence for it or feels that any evidence is required. That reflects an extreme, extraordinarily high degree of success in manufacture of consent and indoctrination. You don't even recognize that there's an alternative, a conceivable alternative to the party line. It's not just that you adopt the party line. It's inconceivable that there could be any alternative to it, so therefore you don't have to give an argument. Well, that's the critics. Uh, and all of this illustrates rather well these uh, conceptions of the differences between democracy and totalitarianism that I mentioned before. Uh, in a, it's necessary in a democracy to have a level of control over thought so, in, so extensive that it is impossible even to imagine that there could be an alternative to the party line. You, that thought has to be entirely constrained within the spectrum of, of the critics who I just mentioned and, and, and the right. And that's very different from a totalitarian state. In a totalitarian state, typically you have a kind of a ministry of truth which produces the truth and everybody can identify it, you know where it's coming from, it's coming from the government, uh, and you, you have to obey. Uh, the extent to which there's, there's often a cost for disobedience. How costly it is depends on the violence of the state. So, for example, in the Soviet Union, if you disobey, uh, you can be, you might be ignored, but if not, you could be sent for psychiatric torture or uh, uh, prison or uh, exile under grim conditions or something like that. In a typical American dependency like El Salvador, uh, what will happen is you'll end up in a ditch with your head cut off after hideous torture. Uh, and states vary, you know, on the level of violence that they use. That's us, that's them. Uh, uh, but it's always uh, uh, dangerous. In a democracy, typically that doesn't happen. Uh, you don't have a ministry of truth which presents the party line, which you can then... Uh, this totalitarian system, in a certain sense, leaves you free, internally free. You don't really have to believe it. You can identify it. You, you have to... You can't... There's a, there's a danger in departing from it openly, but you can essentially believe whatever you want. Uh, in a democratic system, that's not true. You can't believe whatever you want. It's dangerous if you believe whatever you want uh, because they can't do to you what they do to you in El Salvador. Uh, therefore, you better only think the right thoughts, and therefore all thought has to be constrained. So we get the result that I just described. And that was typical throughout the, uh, throughout the war. There was, uh, it's kind of intriguing to see how it worked. There was, of course, a debate over the war during, in the 60s in mainstream circles. That debate was between people called hawks and people called doves. Uh, the hawks were people like, for example, journalist Joseph Alsop, who held that if the United States used sufficient degree of violence, it could win the war. And the doves were people like Arthur Schlesinger, who was described as an anti-war leader and kind of a leading dove. And his view was that no matter, even if we used 
extensive violence, we probably wouldn't win. Although, he went on to say, I'm quoting now, that we all pray that Mr. Alsop will be right. And if the American government does succeed, he said, we will all be praising the wisdom and statesmanship of the American government uh, in reducing Vietnam to what he called a land of ruin and wreck. Now, that's the dove position. Uh, if you read, and that's not very far in the past, read today's editorials about El Salvador, and that's exactly what the liberal press is saying. They're saying, well, looks like we can reduce the land to ruin and wreck and massacre enough people so that we'll win, so therefore we should all be praising the wisdom and statesmanship of the government. That's the critic's position, as it's been in the past. Now, between those two positions, the doves and the hawks, you're allowed to have a debate. In fact, the better, the more vigorous the debate, the better the propaganda system likes it, because the more vigorous the debate, the more deeply you instill the unstated principles, which are, of course, that the United States has the right to use force and violence to achieve its ends, and the only, uh, the only question that can be raised about this is whether it will succeed at a sufficient, uh, at a low enough cost. Now, again, in a, in a totalitarian system, you could never put forth that principle. Uh, it would be too crude. Uh, but in a democratic system, again, you don't say it openly, but it's presupposed by the debate, and the idea is that uh, that's supposed to, and it often does, instill the principle. So the ordinary person on the outside uh, will say, uh, well, you know, if even the critics assume this, who am I to question it? Uh, and uh, in fact, it's the critics who play the major role in a democratic system of thought control in, in ensuring that the manufacture of consent works. That's incidentally why they're tolerated, in fact, honored. They play a major role. Uh, my own view is that if dictators were smarter, they would use our system. Uh, I think it, uh, they, they don't understand the benefits of a lively, exciting debate uh, between positions which assume the same principles and appear to be uh, at opposite ends because they differ tactically with regard to how well those principles can be enacted. That's a very effective technique of thought control, one that's been honed to a high art in the United States as part of our general PR system. Well, let me say that uh, here we have to enter some qualifications. While this propaganda system worked like a dream among the educated classes, uh, it didn't work all that well among the population at large. And that shows up. It shows up uh, in polls, for example. Uh, so for as recently as 1982, which is the latest one I saw, uh, the Gallup poll uh, asked the question that have polled. You know, the United States is a heavily polled country, not for our information, but because business likes to monitor public attitudes for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes we also hear about it. Uh, and the, uh, they have polls on international affairs. Uh, and uh, uh, one, uh, in 1982, the, they asked the question, do you think that the Vietnam War was a mistake or was it, I'm quoting now, fundamentally wrong and immoral? Well, of the general population, 72% said it was fundamentally wrong and immoral. Uh, many fewer opinion, so-called opinion leaders held that position. That includes clergy and so on. And among articulate intellectuals, virtually nobody ever held that position, uh, even at the height of opposition to the war the number of people who felt that it was something other than a mistake, that aggression is wrong, in other words, was minuscule among the educated classes. Uh, th there's a big split, in other words, between the attitude of the general population on this issue and the attitude of the educated classes. Uh, that split even has a name. It's called the Vietnam Syndrome. Uh, the term, the terminology is interesting. Syndrome is a term you use for a disease. Right? And the Vietnam Syndrome is a kind of a disease that spread over the population, namely uh, the discipline began to break down, not among the educated. They held, they held the line. 
but among the general population discipline began to break down and this disease spread with really terrifying symptoms such as a refusal to follow orders or raising questions about what the state is doing or uh, even worse something like say sympathy for victims of uh, American violence and feelings of solidarity with them and so on. That's a disease that has to be overcome. It's not a disease that was ever widespread or even particularly noticeable among privileged or educated groups, uh, but it did spread among the population. Uh, and this distinction, incidentally, is not unique to this case. In many cases, you find that the educated parts of the population are the most extensively indoctrinated, the ones who understand least about the world, uh, and the ones who believe most fervently the principles of the faith. And that's not surprising either, if you think about it. Educated people are subjected to much more intensive indoctrination. Well, that's what education is. Uh, and, you know, they're the ones that, who, who suffer from it. They're its victims. But also they have a kind of a class interest in believing it because their social role is to be the purveyors of, of propaganda. So therefore it's necessary to kind of internalize it and believe it. And if you don't do that, you sort of are marginalized and eliminated from the intellectual class. So it's not too surprising that among the educated you find the least understanding uh, and uh, the most a profound indoctrination. The inability, for example, even to conceive that there could be an alternative to the party line on issues such as those I discussed. Well, let me turn now to the uh, things that are omitted in this discussion. Uh, there are two major things that were omitted in the retrospectives. The first is the background planning. And here let me generalize it, uh, because in fact there is underlying the American war in Vietnam, that you wouldn't know it from the media or from most books, there was a very well-worked-out geopolitical conception, which didn't only apply to Vietnam, but applies worldwide. Uh, my own feeling is if you understand this geopolitical conception, a lot of what happens in the world will fall into place now and in the future. And if you don't understand it, most of what's going on in the world is going to look like a total mystery uh, and just kind of wandering around randomly from blunder to blunder or something like that. Uh, but uh, uh, the, and, uh, you can even get a pretty good... Uh, reputation as a prophet if you get to understand what the <laughs> underlying thinking is. Uh, and it's, again, well documented. You've got to search to find the documents. They're not, you know, they're suppressed in effect. Uh, the, uh, the, the main, this, this, I mean, it goes way back, but I want to start from the Second World War, which represented a qualitative change. The United States emerged from the Second World War in a position of global power that had very few counterpart, probably no counterpart in history. Uh, there, I doubt if there'd ever been a time in history when any single power uh, had such a degree of world domination in terms of control over wealth, in terms of military power, and so on. And uh, going back to what I said before, American elites are very class conscious, very self-conscious. Uh, they understood this, they planned, uh, and they prepared, they uh, worked out how the post-war world should be, how it should be run and organized, so as to conform to uh, their interests in a world that they expected to rule and dominate to an extent without historical precedent. From 1939 to 1945, there were a long series of meetings run by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the major business input into policy planning, and the State Department. It included all top planners in the State Department. This is called the War Peace Studies Group. And they were essentially planning the post-war world. Uh, by 1943 or so, it was pretty obvious how it was going to come out. Uh, and uh, they developed a concept which they called the Grand Area. The Grand Area was to be a region subordinated to the needs of the American economy. As one planner put it, it was a region strategically necessary for world control. And the Grand Area was to include as a minimum the entire Western Hemisphere, 
the far east and the former british empire which we were in the process of taking over during the war that's incidentally something called anti imperialism in american history writing uh, and it was also to include western europe and the oil producing regions of the middle east and in fact everything if possible but at least that much that was the grand area which was to be supported subordinated to the needs of the american economy and rather detailed plans were laid for particular regions in the grand area i'll come back to some of them uh, the thinking behind all of this was explained very lucidly by one of the most important american political thinkers and planners of the period namely george kennan he's interesting for one thing because he's smart uh, and he says things clearly and accurately and he's also interesting for the same reason that the critics i quoted before are interesting he's at an at the end of the spectrum he's at the humane liberal dovish end of the spectrum and he's also very lucid so his conception sort of a fortiori everything hold that holds for everyone else worse in other words so here's what you hear at the liberal end of the spectrum in this period this is george kennan uh, uh, in February 1948 happens to be the top secret document that I'm quoting from. Uh, paraphrasing, I'm not actually quoting. He says there that uh, he, he starts by pointing out that the United States has 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of the world's population. This disparity, he says, causes envy and resentment. Uh, the major goal of our foreign policy must be to maintain the disparity. Now, to maintain the disparity is going to, is going to require harsh measures. We therefore should put aside what he called vague and idealistic slogans, such as, I'm quoting now, human rights, raising of the living standards, and democratization, and be prepared to use harsh measures. The less we're hamper hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. We should put aside all ideas about world benefaction and altruism and be ready to use force if necessary. That's the message. Uh, that's the way you maintain the disparity. Well, that was the planning from the liberal side. Uh, let me make a comment on that first. When he talks about the disparity between the United States and the rest of the world, there's something hidden, of course. The United States doesn't mean the people of the United States. Uh, there's actually a comparable disparity internal to the United States, and that must be maintained too, although he didn't bother to say that because this is foreign policy. But internal to the United States, there's also a disparity which has to be maintained, and for that you also need harsh measures. Uh, and in fact, the planners recognized throughout that if the United States moved towards a more egalitarian society, something which is obviously not contemplated or conceivable, uh, then it would, be not, it would not be necessary to have a global order subordinated to the needs of the American economy. There were other kinds of arrangements that would be possible uh, without such uh, primacy given to what we ought to call the freedom to rob. Uh, if uh, if, um, if you didn't have to maintain the internal disparity, but of course that was not in question. Uh, that's also discussed extensively. Well, that was canon as a general, that, uh, that document actually happened to refer to the Far East, but the United States is a global power, and the same ideas were developed for other regions, continuing with Kennan. Uh, in the case of Latin America, the other area I want to talk about, uh, Kennan explained in a briefing to Latin American ambassadors that. Uh, uh, he explained that uh, the a prime goal of our foreign policy must be what he called the protection of our raw materials. Notice no mincing of words here. Protection of our raw materials. And protection of our raw materials means protection against the indigenous population because they're the only ones who are going to take them. We already kicked out the British and the Russians are only there to frighten the domestic population. But the real enemy is the indigenous population. 
uh, and we got to protect their raw materials from them. And to do so, he said, again, harsh measures will be necessary. We should not uh, refrain from police measures if necessary, he said. It's better to have a harsh government in power than a government that's liberal and relaxed and tolerant of what he called communists. Well, here the term communists has a very special meaning in American political theology. It refers to people, whatever their political commitments, who are committed to taking, stealing our resources, that is to using them for uh, domestic needs. They're communists by definition. Uh, and doesn't matter what they believe, they believe New Deal capitalists or whatever, uh, but they're communists. Uh, and uh, those are the people against whom we have to use harsh measures, including police measures, which makes some sense if we have to protect their resources and maintain the disparity as the prime element in our foreign policy. Uh, well, uh, that's Latin America. Uh, incidentally, the, what Kevin may very well have had in mind was a State Department intelligence report that had come out just a year earlier, which warned of a rather dangerous doctrine that it was spreading over much of the world, including Latin America, namely the belief that, I'm quoting now, that governments have a responsibility for the welfare of their people. Now, that's communism in our terms, and obviously that has to be stopped, because if governments arise that have a responsibility for the welfare of their people, they don't have a corresponding responsibility for our welfare, and that's obviously the transcendent need if you have to protect our raw materials and uh, uh, maintain the disparity. Well, that's Latin America. With regard to Asia, the geopolitical picture that was developed was that sooner or later Japan was going to be reconstituted as the industrial heartland of Asia. Uh, Japan is a resource-poor area and also needs markets. Therefore, the, in order to ensure that, the United, that Japan, this industrial society, remains essentially within American control, it would be necessary to provide Japan with uh, resources and raw materials, which meant primarily South and Southeast Asia. So in this global, remember these are global planners, they're not playing for small stakes. In the global planning that was developed, uh, Japan, uh, the United States was going to have to ensure that a reindustrialized Japan, uh, operating within the framework of American power, would have access to resources and raw materials, in particular in Southeast Asia. That's, in fact, directly the thinking that led us behind uh, into the Vietnam War. Now let me turn to what was, that, that's the omitted geopolitical conception. That's never discussed. None of this is ever discussed in the planning document, in the retrospectives, or in fact almost anywhere in American history, except if, unless you go to sort of technical monographs that you are sure that only a small number of people are going to read or something. Uh, and th let me say that I've just barely touched the surface. This goes on to quite detailed and explicit planning, pursuing these basic ideas in about the way you'd expect. Well, now let's turn to the omitted history, the history that was down the memory hole in these retrospectives. Remember what happened. Let's remind ourselves of that. Starting around 1948, the United States recognized explicitly all of this. All of this is in secret documents. In public, of course, you don't talk about things like this. Like no president gets up to the public and says, uh, look, folks, we have to rob the rest of the world in order to maintain the disparity between us and them, meaning between the rich here and them, uh, meanwhile, keeping you guys down where you belong, too. Uh, and we're going to have to use force to do that. Presidents don't say that. What they talk about is our noble objectives and our lofty intentions and so on. And the well-disciplined intellectuals repeat that stuff for them. That's what the media are about and what the schools and universities are about and so on. But this is now the real world. Well, now let's look at the history in the real world, also secret. I mean, the events are not, but the documents are. Uh, by 1948, the State Department had recognized explicitly that the nationalist movement of Indochina was led by Ho Chi Minh 
and the Viet Minh, the anti-French resistance. Uh, and they recognized that there is really no alternative. There's no expedient short of, uh, alternative that could be concocted. However, they also recognize that that's unacceptable. The reason it's unacceptable is that a nationalist movement in Vietnam under the leadership of the Viet Minh might very well be successful in social and economic development. And if it were successful, then uh, that invokes a certain theory, which we call sometimes the domino theory, but actually to be historically accurate, we really ought to call it the rotten apple theory, because that's the image that's constantly used. Uh, the idea is that one rotten apple in the barrel may infect the whole barrel. That is, if one country undertakes successful social and economic development independent of the United States, other countries might try to do the same thing. People next across the border are going to say, why not us? You know? And then the rot may spread, as the planners put it. If you think I'm kidding, you've got to read the documents. The rot of social and economic de development that would be successful, as Kissinger put it, and with regard to Allende, uh, the, inf the, the, uh, the contagion may spread and infect other regions. These disease metaphors are very commonly used, and you can see why, and it's really frightening that people are stealing our resources all over the place. Uh, and uh, so, ac so according to the rotten apple theory, if, you know, uh, which then became you know, the domino theory, if, uh, uh, if there is successful social and economic development, although Vietnam isn't all that important, the right to rob Vietnam was not all that important, though Eisenhower made all sorts of speeches about tin and tungsten and so on. But mainly it wasn't that. The problem was that the rot might spread. And therefore, the, the sort of cancerous growth had to be stopped at its source. Uh, so we therefore uh, supported the French in their effort to reconquer their former colony. And by the end of that war, which was 1954, when the French pulled out, we were providing about 80% of the costs. Uh, that was a very serious war. About half a million people, half a million Vietnamese died during that period. Uh, well, that was 1954. The French pulled out. We came rather close to using nuclear weapons at that time. The United States was really intent on preventing the rot from spreading. The French pulled out. There was a political settlement. The United States moved in, blocked the political settlement, uh, installed in South Vietnam the kind of government that we're very familiar with in our history. We installed a typical Latin American terror and torture state, the kind we have a lot of practice with. And it immediately blocked the political settlement, but it also turned to the task of uh, massacring the domestic population. Again, that's what we know about from our own history. Uh, the government that we installed uh, killed off about 70,000 or 80,000 people by about 1960, which is, again, not a small number. Uh, this had the, the, uh, had the effect that it often has, namely it aroused resistance, kind of an odd phenomenon that nobody understands. And that, of course, proved that the Russians are coming, as it also always does. Uh, by 1960, when Kennedy, 61, when Kennedy came in, there was a problem. The government that we had established, which everybody in Washington knew had no popular base, was collapsing because now there was resistance uh, after this massacre. Uh, and what were we going to do? So what Kennedy did, and this is instructive, what Kennedy did was simply to attack South Vietnam. In 1961 and 62, the American Air Force was sent to bomb South Vietnam. No subterfuges. American planes from the American Air Force started extensive bombing and defoliation in South Vietnam. This was part of a broad program intended to drive several million people, maybe up to seven million people or so, into concentration camps, which we call strategic hamlets, where they would be surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards, and as we put it, protected from the guerrillas who, as we conceded, they were willingly supporting. Well, that was that program. When any other country does that, we call it aggression. That's like what the Russians are doing in Afghanistan. But when we do it, it's defense. 
in fact the extent you know the extent of the servility of the liberal intelligentsia on this is kind of remarkable for example Arthur Schlesinger again the anti-war leader and let me keep to the critics because they're by far the more interesting Schlesinger has a book about this period called a thousand days history of the Kennedy administration and he talks about the year 1962 when this attack began he says 1962 was not a bad year he says aggression was checked in Vietnam meaning the aggression of the Vietnamese against us was checked by our attack against South Vietnam that's what happened in 1962 but as that gets filtered into party history its aggression is checked in South Vietnam this was explained rather nicely by another hero of the liberal pantheon Adlai Stevenson at the United Nations he said that in Vietnam we're engaged in defense against what he called internal aggression it's a lovely Orwellian concept Orwell wasn't smart enough to dream it up we're defending ourselves against the internal aggression of the Vietnamese in Vietnam as we do in many parts of the world well that was the early 60s meanwhile the Kennedy and the Johnson administration continued the war extended the war against South Vietnam they overthrew government after government because they couldn't find anyone who was sufficiently enthusiastic to support our escalation of the war against the South they blocked every political settlement they blocked neutralization they also understood exactly what they were doing nothing about lofty intentions or you know benevolence or anything like this they understood exactly what they were doing it's explained very well by government scholars for example Douglas Pike who was the leading government scholar on the Viet Cong and who writes about wrote at the time about this period that it was obviously impossible to accept a political settlement because he said we could not expect our minnow to compete politically with their whale well obviously you can't have a political settlement if they have a whale and we have a minnow can't have democracy under those circumstances so we couldn't nourish the whale it was minnow so we had to do is destroy the whale so therefore we had to attack South Vietnam no lofty intentions nothing else this is just ordinary consequences of the Kennan-esque geopolitical thoughts that I described well that takes us to about 1965 by 1965 the United States had killed off about 160,000 people or more in South Vietnam those are not small numbers give some comparisons later if you like but they do they compare with Pol Pot for instance the real facts that's before we got into the war officially about 160,000 killed in 1965 the government was again collapsing we had we had to carry out an extensive land invasion of South Vietnam we also started the the systematic bomb but we then been bombing South Vietnam for about three years but that's when the systematic bombardment began like B-52 bombings and the Mekong Delta and so on we also attacked the north at that time the period from 65 to 75 I won't go into anymore the United States extended the war also to Laos and Cambodia the total casualties during that period are probably in the neighborhood of about three million in Vietnam and maybe three-quarters of a million or so in or maybe close to a million in Laos and Cambodia well you add it all up it comes to about five million casualties which is a lot the land was ravaged the societies were destroyed particularly in South Vietnam where the popular movements were wiped out there are millions and millions of refugees the by 1970 I should say it was pretty obvious that the end result was going to be either just you know total annihilation of the place or else a North Vietnamese takeover that's what I myself wrote in 1970 that it would end up with a North Vietnamese takeover for the very simple reason that every other indigenous society was destroyed so there'd be nothing left except the North Vietnamese that's pretty much what happened five years later and that consequence of American savagery is now used as a retrospective justification for it see look the North Vietnamese have taken over we were right to destroy South Vietnam 
That's, again, a propaganda operation that Goebbels would have admired, but it's intriguing to notice that it goes on in the media with no comment. You know, nobody can comment on it. Well, again, that tells us something. The end result of all of this is that the United States won a partial victory. This is called a defeat in Vietnam, but that's because they misunderstood. One thing that all the media retrospectives agreed on was that the United States was defeated. They say that's indubitable. It happens to be untrue. In fact, virtually anything that's stated as undubitable in the propaganda system is probably false. That's a good rule of thumb. And this is one such thing. The United States wasn't defeated and couldn't be defeated. A country this powerful can't be defeated. It can only be partially defeated. And we won the major objective, namely the rotten apple theory isn't going to work. The chances that Vietnam will be a model of social and economic development for anybody else are very low. They'll be lucky to survive after this assault. And that's a very significant victory when you think about what the real reasons were, not the lofty intentions and so on, which are to pacify the population, but the real thinking, that's a victory. And we've been ensuring it ever since. The post-war American policy is designed to guarantee that there'll be a maximum of oppression and suffering and also brutality in Indochina. So we've refused reparations, which we certainly owe them. We've refused aid. We've blocked trade. We've blocked aid from international organizations. We've tried to prevent other countries from aiding them. For example, the level of sadism that was achieved in this is kind of hard to imagine sometimes. One of the things that the United States did in the war against Vietnam was to destroy most of the buffalo. Well, that's a peasant society. Buffalo means tractors, fertilizers, and so on. And in fact, like the Washington Post publishes pictures of peasants pulling plows. And this is supposed to be proof of communist iniquity. Actually, those pictures were, in fact, fabrications of Thai intelligence, very likely. But they could have gotten real pictures if they wanted. And the reason why peasants are pulling plows is because we killed the buffalo. Well, India tried to send 100 buffalo, which is nothing. And the United States tried to block it by blocking food for peace aid, believe it or not. Mennonites tried to send pencils to Cambodia. The government tried to block it. Oxfam tried to send solar pumps to Cambodia. They tried to block it. Shovels to Laos to dig up unexploded ordnance. Nothing is allowed. That country has to suffer maximally so that we can then use that suffering to justify the attack and to justify similar attacks against other countries. That's the post-war policy. President Carter, in one of his sermons about human rights, literally said the following. He said that we owe Vietnam no debt. He said, because the destruction was mutual. That's a statement that bears comparison to Stalin or Hitler, actually. But it passed without a mention. There wasn't a comment on it in the American press. Yep, the destruction was mutual. Just sort of walk around the streets of Washington and Boston, and you can see. It's just like Vin and so on. But the fact, again, that this statement could be made, this monstrous statement could be made without comment, again, that tells you something about the manufacture of consent, the level of indoctrination. Well, in fact, all of this was a triumph of the manufacture of consent, again, among the educated part of the population, less so elsewhere where the Vietnam syndrome remains. Well, let me briefly turn to Central America and draw a few parallels. I won't go through the whole history because it's too long and horrifying. The United States has, in fact, been tormenting Central America for over 130 years now, actually back to 1800, if you pursue it in all of its gory detail. In 1854, the first major military attack took place. This was against Nicaragua. In 1854, the American Navy burned down a town, a port town, San Juan del Norte, 
in Nicaragua. This was not a capricious act, I should say. It was an act of revenge. What had happened is that an American millionaire, Cornelius Vanderbilt, had sailed his yacht into the town, and the port officials had tried to levy charges against it. So in retaliation, the Navy burned the town down. That town was captured about a year ago, briefly, for a couple days by Contras, and the press made a big fuss about it, but they kind of omitted the history, which is interesting. That was 1854. Through this century, the United States, for long periods, invaded and occupied Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Panama, Honduras, country after country. Virtually every country that we invaded and occupied, we left after ravaging it and so on, in Haiti, reinstating slavery and torturing and so on. We left murderous military dictators who remained, Trujillo, Somoza, the Duvaliers, and so on. That's the characteristic result. Without going into details, the whole region has been turned into a kind of a horror chamber, one of the worst in the world, with slavery, mass starvation, while croplands are turned to exports, torture, murder, I mean, any horror you can think of. That's an interesting reflection of American history. In a really free society, this kind of stuff would be taught in elementary school, but here it's suppressed, and the extent to which it's suppressed is, again, remarkable. You can take a look this morning at the New York Times, where there's an op-ed by the editor of Foreign Policy, the more liberal of the general foreign policy journals, in which he describes how awful Central America is, and he gives all the reasons, I mean, the Spanish, you know, colonization, the culture, and so on and so forth. One reason happens to be missing, you know, guess which one. That's a level of cowardice and dishonesty, which, again, is very hard to duplicate elsewhere, but is absolutely characteristic here. Well, that's Central America in general. Let's take a look at El Salvador in particular. In El Salvador in 1932, there was a mass murder. Maybe 20,000 or 30,000 peasants were killed, and the country was traumatized and disciplined. The dictator who carried it out ran an election for the benefit of the United States, in which he was the only candidate, and we duly recognized him. Everything was fine, you know, just normal torture and starvation and so on, until about 1960, when there was a reformist officer's coup, which looked like it might change the situation. The Kennedy administration blocked it, supported a counter-coup, restored a military dictatorship. Again, things were quiet through the 60s. In 1972, there was an election. The people who were elected were Duarte and Guillermo Ungo, now head of the political organization associated with the guerrillas. However, the election was immediately overthrown by a military coup backed by the United States, involving the participation of the two of the most loyal and murderous U.S. allies, Guatemala and Nicaragua. Duarte came to Washington at that time. Nobody was interested. The only senators, congressmen who would even talk to him were Kennedy and Tom Harkin. The rest didn't care, the press didn't care, and so on. That expresses our interest in elections. The same thing happened in 1977. Again, no interest. In fact, everything was fine. It was under a military dictator, just the normal story. However, there were two developments that were worrisome. The first was what was happening in Nicaragua. In 1979, Somoza, who was the most loyal American ally, was overthrown, and the Carter administration was beginning to be concerned that the same thing might happen in El Salvador, and the United States might also lose control there. The second thing that was happening was even more threatening. 
there was a growth through ninth the nine hundred seventy s of what they called their popular organizations now these typically started from things like say bible study groups run by the church which turned into self help organizations which sometimes became peasant cooperatives or peasant associations and unions and so on and so forth in fact there was the beginning of the development of of uh, popular organizations in which people could actually participate uh, and that's intolerable for a very simple reason that's the basis for democracy you can't have democracy in any meaningful sense if isolated individuals have to face concentrated power alone uh, if that's what if that's the system you've got then democracy amounts to pushing a lever once every couple of years to select choose between representatives of one or another group that has a base in the private elsewhere usually the private economy real democracy means participation it means people it means isolated individuals with limited resources can pool those resources can have ideas you know can exchange information can have access to information can can put forth programs and can figure out ways to implement those programs on the political agenda unless you've got that you don't have any democracy now there's one group of course that has that well whatever groups there are that that own the private economy typically have that ability but nobody else does uh, and that's a prerequisite to democracy and that was beginning to develop in El Salvador in the 70s which is very frightening uh, as you can see from the geopolitical considerations that I mentioned uh, well what did the United States do in 1979 the Carter administration October 79 backed the reformist coup a military coup which overthrew the dictatorship the Carter administration who they were afraid it was going to fall the Carter administration however insisted that the most reactionary and brutal military elements be dominant in the junta killings rapidly increased by early 1980 a few months later the group had collapsed the left Christian Democrats the socialists the reformist military officers were out and power was back in the hands of the usual thugs who we support in Latin America at that point uh, Jose Napoleon Duarte came in to provide a cover for what he knew what was going to we knew was going to happen next namely a huge massacre to try to crush the popular organizations and he's been playing that role ever since much to the applause of the American audience which regards this as a, a great proof of uh, you know that he should win the Nobel Peace Prize or something like that uh, that was early 1980 in February in right at that time the Archbishop Archbishop Romero uh, wrote a letter to Carter a important letter in which he pleaded with Carter not to send military aid the reason he said was that military aid would be used to increase the repression and to destroy the popular organizations which he said are fighting for the fundamental human rights but of course that was the very essence of American policy so Carter naturally sent the aid uh, he sent it again with an astonishing Orwellian phrase uh, namely he said he went to the Congress he said we have to send the military aid so that the military can play a more significant role in uh, reforms he knew exactly what the reforms were going to be they were exactly what the archbishop said namely destruction of the uh, increasing the repression and destruction of the uh, popular organizations well that's what happened exactly as predictable and predicted a couple of weeks later the archbishop was assassinated uh, in May 1980 Carter's war against the peasantry began with major massacres usually in areas designated for land reform which provided a kind of cover for the massacres in June the university was attacked and destroyed many people killed the billing buildings pillaged and destroyed uh, in November the political opposition was massacred meanwhile the independent press was wiped out we don't believe in censorship in the United States what we believe in is what we did in El Salvador 
namely you blow up the newspaper you take the editor out and you hack into pieces with a machete and so on and so forth and pretty soon there's no need for censorship so by the there isn't any censorship in El Salvador that's that was the Carter war about 10,000 people killed during that one mostly suppressed in the press here I should say Duarte's himself said that the masses were with the guerrillas at that time but he felt better afterwards he said now they're not anymore which is probably true after you're subjected to an experience like that Carter's war against the popular organizations was a success they were destroyed but again it had the usual consequence people began to flock to the guerrillas which proves that the Russians are coming that period is very similar to what happened in Vietnam in the 19th in the late 1950s very similar check it out you find very much the same was happening well at that point Reagan came in you did what he would have expected to do is exactly what Kennedy did namely escalate the war by American bombing he didn't he tried but he didn't the reason he didn't was because the country this country has changed a lot in the past 20 years when Kennedy attacked South Vietnam there was virtually no protest in fact as I mentioned that event doesn't exist in American history which is an indication of the of the depth of indoctrination of the period but that's not true anymore when Reagan began to move towards direct aggression against El Salvador there was a very substantial popular response and the government had to back off they've had to use more devious methods to carry out mass slaughter in El Salvador which have been very brutal and destructive but it's still short of b-52 bombing and so on and so forth well Reagan picked it up where Carter left off by the end of 19 by the end of 1981 according to church sources in El Salvador about 30,000 people had been killed and about 600,000 refugees have been created and as the church announced that Gene Kirkpatrick made a speech in which he extolled the moral quality of the government that was doing it those figures have incidentally been approximately doubled since well that's El Salvador it's still going on there's no commentary on it there's no debate over it it's considered among reasonable people among reasonable humane people it's considered simply our right to carry out mass murder in El Salvador so there's nothing to debate nothing in Congress about it nothing in the press very little reported if you want to learn about it you've got to go to the reports of human rights organizations which document in detail the indiscriminate murder carried out by the Air Force with direct you know with American control and coordination the torture in the prisons and so on and so forth but in the press nothing it's just a marvelous tribute to our success that all of this is happening there is some protest about Nicaragua and that again tells you something about the nature of the propaganda system and the way the government sets the terms of debate there's only here to hear the peace movement has fallen into the trap totally let me illustrate it's very similar to what happened in the mid-sixties in the mid-sixties there was considerable protest about the war against North Vietnam bombing of North Vietnam but very little protest about the bombing of South Vietnam which was far more intense and far more destructive and the ground war against South Vietnam even more so the protest was against the war against the North and the reason was that that carried potential costs for us the war against the South has no costs we just murdered defenseless people you know doesn't cost a thing in fact that's kind of a historical vocation you might say in the war against the North however is problematic it could bring in the Chinese you know could bring in the Russians has international complications it's another country you know so therefore there was protest about it the Pentagon incidentally noticed this McNamara for example points out in secret documents that 
the protest is against the bombing of the North, not against the more intensive bombing of the South, and drew the appropriate conclusions. Notice how the story is being replayed today. The, pro uh, the, the attack against Nicaragua is bad enough, in fact, very bad, but it's nothing like the attack against El Salvador. I mean, not remotely like it. Uh, but the protest is against the attack on Nicaragua. The government has framed the debate so that you're allowed to discuss whether the United States is allow is, um, should or should not attack Nicaragua, uh, but you're not allowed to discuss whether we have the right to attack El Salvador. That's just a given. That's out of discussion. The peace movement has fallen into the trap totally. Uh, the Pledge of Resistance, for example, uh, is a pledge of resistance if the government escalates the war against Nicaragua. There is no Pledge of Resistance if the government continues the war against El Salvador. Again, that's a given. Uh, lots of people were arrested, me included, last week about the embargo against Nicaragua, but nobody was arrested and there was no demonstration about the mass slaughter being conducted in El Salvador. That's a given again. Again, this illustrates uh, the enormous power of the state to set the terms of discussion, to frame the discussion in terms acceptable to it. The debate over Nicaragua is more or less acceptable because that could, just as the, war, as the debate over North Vietnam was acceptable, because kind of lying behind that is the idea that somehow you can, it can be construed in defensive terms. It can be construed as defense of El Salvador against somebody, and then you can argue about whether there's really an attack or not. But the attack against South Vietnam or the attack against El Salvador, that can't be construed in any terms other than mass slaughter. Uh, and in fact, if you look at its reasons, they're obvious to prevent exactly the reasons that the archbishop gave, namely to destroy the popular organizations that are fighting for the people's fundamental human rights. There's no way to make that tolerable to the propaganda system, so therefore you've got to suppress it. And we all play along, I should say myself included, uh, the, the peace movement included, we all play along because we're so effectively brainwashed. Well, all of that uh, illustrates once again the triumphs of the manufacture of consent in a society with a sophisticated uh, and class-conscious ruling class that learns, that thinks, that has resources, uh, that plans, uh, and that in fact controls the means of indoctrination uh, as long as the educated classes accept the appropriate degree of servility. The same story could be repeated with regard to the Middle East, with regard to the so-called arms race and all sorts of other things, and also domestic issues. Uh, no time for that. Well, when a superpower uh, gains the ability to, when it develops an effective system of indoctrination, then the world becomes a very dangerous place. Uh, we here should be able to come to understand these crucial features of our society and also to act to change them. The fate of many millions of people throughout the world, and very likely the fate of human civilization, depends quite directly, I think, on our willingness to undertake that task and to carry it forth with honesty and courage and determination. said was I, I, I thank uh, Professor Chomsky for mentioning the fact that the peace movement has not picked up 
very much on the slaughter of citizens in El Salvador. However, part of the peace movement has, that part is an organization known as CISPIS, uh, which is a solidarity organization for El Salvador. And CISPIS has, in fact, been running a campaign uh, since early this spring uh, opposing the bombing in El Salvador. One of the problems is, of course, that um, it's a small organization in the United States, and the Congress hasn't uh, followed along. But I will say that I have brochures outside at the Casa table where you can send money and you can do whatever is possible, and I'm sure Noam can tell you some of the things that we as American citizens can do. But I have brochures describing the bombing campaign in El Salvador and suggesting means for overcoming the bombing campaign in El Salvador. And if everybody would come to the next CASA meeting, which is the first Wednesday uh, in the month of June, right here, 7 o'clock, at the downstairs conference room, we meet every, Wednesday, every first Wednesday and third Monday of the month at 7 o'clock. We'll give you things to do. And I think, as Noam has pointed out, that's our only hope in this struggle. I'd certainly endorse that. This is the really scandal, the way we've let that go by. Let me just make one comment about that. Duarte, who's the official hero around here, recently announced that he's not going to accept any more human rights charges from the Church Human Rights Office uh, to Talalegal because he said it's allied with people who are controlled by the subversives. That is, the Church is all communists. That's the guy who's the big Democrat. And he also said at that time, that the Air Force is not engaged in any indiscriminate attacks against civilians. It's only engaged in uh, air attacks supporting ground forces. The, the contrary of that is described in very graphic and gory detail uh, in a series of America's Watch reports uh, in the last couple of months, this one last month, one last August, and one last April. That's the man who uh, everyone is lauding you know, as the next uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, uh, a laureate. Yeah. How do you know what's in the secret Oh, because again, this is a very open society, more so than any other in the world, and secret documents do get released. So the documents that I was quoting, in fact, have all been released. They were top secret documents, I'm sorry. Uh, there's also a very valuable store of documents which were uh, released, thank liberated, we might say, thanks to Dan Ellsberg, namely the Pentagon Papers. And that's particularly valuable because usually you don't get access to a government's secret documents unless the government decides to release them. That was a case where the government didn't decide to release them. And in fact, uh, they're very interesting. However, I should say that they're not all that different from the public documents that have been released. Uh, we have access, this, you know, I, I don't know what would happen if scholars and journalists ever started using the documentary record. Maybe at that point they'd stop releasing it. But the fact of the matter is they do release it. It sort of doesn't matter too much because nobody ever sees it except some, you know, fanatics. But uh, it's there <laughs> if you want to look. And in fact, it's, there's, there's, you know, there are books and articles discussing it too. Well, you have to remember when it was. That was 1972. And there's some important things to bear in mind here. 
January 1968, the Tet Offensive took place. Now, the Tet Offensive changed the calculation of costs of American elites. They decided, uh, there was a question how to react to the Tet Offensive. Tet Offensive was an astonishing event. I mean, throughout South Vietnam, in just about every city, there was a coordinated, we, even the, the term is very misleading. I mean, it, it's, you know, the term, again, reflects the indoctrination system. It's, in, it's a logical impossibility for the South Vietnamese to carry out an offensive in South Vietnam. It wasn't an offensive. It was, a, it was an uprising against the aggressors. That's what we ought to call it. But the Tet Uprising uh, took place in a coordinated fashion in just about every city in South Vietnam. The Americans had, we had a, a, over half a million troops there. There were very few North Vietnamese. There were, in fact, only about 50,000 North Vietnamese, mostly at the border. They were probably outnumbered at the time by the Thai and Korean mercenaries that we had there, and the United States just dwarfed anyone. Nobody got, had an inkling of it. You know, there's this, this coordinated mass uprising in city after city, which the United States, which just was controlling the whole society, had no inkling of. That's an indication of the extent of the popular involvement in it. Uh, they, the, the, they now like to say that the result was a victory for the United States, and in a certain sense that's true. The United States had such enormous firepower that it was able to wipe out huge numbers of South Vietnamese. Uh, so in that sense, of course, it was a victory. But it frightened people in Washington. It made them recognize that it was going to be a long, drawn-out war. Well, the question arose as to whether to send more troops. And the deliberations are interesting and instructive. The Joint Chiefs were opposed to sending more troops. And one of their reasons was that they thought those troops would be needed here for civil disorder control. Uh, that tells you something. Uh, they, uh, and they spelled it out. They, they mentioned groups that were going to be a problem. Youth, women, others. No, literally. No. Uh, and they literally felt that they had to keep the troops here. No. Also, the United States government was worried about that time, about the, at the time, at the fact that the army was collapsing. The American army, much to its credit, I should say, disintegrated. Uh, and uh, that's not a small fact. The United States, again, is unique. Another element of American uniqueness is that other imperial powers have not used citizens' armies for colonial wars. That's unique. It was a bad mistake. Uh, for a colonial war, you need professional killers. You need people like the French Foreign Legion, you know, ex-Nazis. That's what the uh, French used. They didn't send a conscript army to Vietnam. The British didn't use conscript armies. They used professional killers, often hill tribesmen or people who were trained to be professional murderers. Uh, you'll notice in South Africa they do the same thing. A lot of the killing is done by professional killers taken from the oppressed communities themselves. It's very typical, incidentally, a typical colonial practice. The United States made a mistake. It sent a citizen's army. And uh, you can't get ordinary people off the streets uh, to become professional murderers. And that's what a colonial war is. It means going into a village and you know, killing women and children and old men and that sort of business. Uh, so uh, that didn't work, and the army began to collapse, and that was a problem. Well, uh, the also another thing, and here again, it, uh, see, the, a, a decision was made in early 1968, uh, and it's on record, to cut back the war. Uh, that's when Johnson decided not to run, and all sorts of things changed. Uh, it was just getting too costly. They couldn't win the war at, an at, a, at, a, at, a, at a, pr a proper cost. Well, then Nixon came in and tried to continue the war, and a lot of the business community was against him, very strongly against him. They felt it was harming the American position in international trade. It was weakening the dollar. It was causing stagflation. It was causing domestic uproar, which they didn't want. They want a nice, quiet population. Uh, 
And for all these reasons, they really wanted to stop it. There was a real split within the ruling class, if you want. And it's in that context that the New York Times published the Pentagon Papers. Uh, it's also in that context that Watergate took place. Uh, Watergate, which was, in my view, largely a farce, was uh, uh, partly a reaction to what strong elements of the ruling class regarded as Nixon's crimes against them. And one of them was just dragging this war on too far when they figured they had achieved what they wanted. You know, Vietnam was not going to recover. Now let's get out and turn to something more important. Uh, however, I should say that the release of the Pentagon Papers, you know, I think, I don't know how smart the New York Times editors are, but the fact is that the release of the Pentagon Papers had almost no effect because they've been suppressed. They've been suppressed as effectively as if they had never been released. Uh, if you look at the, take a look at the books that are coming out, say Carnot, you know, or certainly the retrospectives, but even the scholarly books, and you'll notice that the material in there is not used. See, in fact, uh, 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 the material in there just tells the wrong story. For example, the material on the planning is very extensive in the Pentagon Papers, and that's never used. If people refer to the Pentagon Papers at all, which they rarely do, and even in scholarly work, it's usually stuff about the mid-1964 or 1965, when they, were, when they were mainly tactical questions. I mean, all the major decisions have already been made. You know, it's only a question of how to implement things. And then you can discuss it. Did we use the right tactics? You know, should we have done it this way, that way? But the major stuff from the late 40s and through the 50s, that's virtually never discussed. Uh, and there's a lot of important material in the Pentagon Papers. I could mention some things, but it's all been suppressed. So it's just as well, it's just as if it didn't get released. Uh, just to give you an indication of this, there's the, uh, the, the Beacon Press published the four volumes of the Pentagon Papers, and they published the fifth volume, which is an index. And the index includes a collection of essays on the Pentagon Papers by Gabriel Calco and John Dower and lots of, lots of good essays. I think they're good. I edited the volume. But uh, it's, it, that volume is practically unsold. A few thousand copies were sold of that volume. And that tells you something. And of course, a lot of the sales are to people who wanted the essays. Now, anybody who's going to use the Pentagon paper needs that volume. You can't use a four-volume work without an index. Okay. So the fact that nobody was buying the volume, including even university libraries, means that they didn't intend that anybody would ever look at them. Okay. And in fact, that's what's happened. Uh, what's your understanding of Not against, independent of. Yeah, right. I understand, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, why do people vote against their own interests and just in favor of somebody who makes them feel good if they feel disenfranchised? Well, uh, I think that re reflects a certain degree of sophistication, actually. Uh, if you recognize that the election is a PR game and it's for show, and it's sort of fun, like a circus, so you might as well be part of it. Uh, and there's a lot of hoopla, and you know, it's exciting and so on. Then who should you vote for? Well, you know, the guy who has a nice smile, let's say. Or the guy who makes you feel good when you sort of, uh, you know, watch him on television or something. Uh, why not? You know? I think that's probably the way most people think. That's why you, that's why you get, see, every, everyone talks about the Reagan landslide. Well, just take a close look at the Reagan landslide. 53% uh, of, of the electorate voted, way below any other country. Of that, 59% voted for Reagan, which if you do the arithmetic means he got, a, I forget what, like 32% of the vote. 
of that roughly thirty two percent of the vote about two thirds i think sixty percent to be precise said that they hoped that his his proposals would not be enacted ok of the when the detailed polling was done of exits from polls when they check people's attitudes it turned out that about i think i forget i think the figure is about four percent of the people who voted for reagan said they strongly approved of his programs what that means is that the landslide consisted of something maybe two percent of the electorate ok that's the landslide everybody's talking about now why did people do it well you know well i think the failure to vote i think we learned something from the fact that the failure to vote was socioeconomically localized as it always is people you know the people who don't vote didn't see anything in it for them uh... of the people who did vote uh... a lot voted i mean some voted because you know i mean like i have friends in fact one one friend of mine who was an ex-malist i should say uh... explained to me that he voted for reagan because reagan's been good to him which is true people in our income group reagan's been very good to all you have to do is look at the redistribution of real disposable income during the reagan years and uh... it's a sort of a straight line if you break the population up into segments depending on income you know low to high and you ask what's happened to real disposable income it's going like that you know it's fallen for the lowest risen for the highest and essentially straight all the way across so there are people who know that they can see you know the rich can see that stealing from the poor is good for the rich you know so they vote for reagan uh... but for much of the population it's just a matter of of kind of recognizing the public relations game you could actually see that you see the american political commentary is very interesting so you recall i mean you know you remember the last election uh... the uh... it's like take the debates okay what happened in the debates you remember the commentary on the debates the commentary was about like whether mondale wore the right tie you know or whether geraldine ferraro looked down instead of at the camera you know or whether you know reagan could sort of get by in a half an hour without making some totally idiotic gaffe i mean that was the uh... that was the level of the commentary the, the, nobody talked about any issues because they really couldn't find any issues. You know? And in fact, issues are regarded to be irrelevant. The, the level of cynicism in the, in the national campaigns is really quite remarkable. So, for example, during the, at the Kennedy administration, here, here's a case in point. Uh, during the Kennedy administration, in the 1960 campaign, Kennedy hired a firm uh, run by a couple of MIT political scientists, which is how I know about it, called Simulmatics. Uh, one of them uh, was, in fact, a student of the guy, Harold Laswell, who I mentioned before. And what this company was going to do was the following. Just think of this. The cynicism is mind-blowing. This company, uh, which had a lot of computers and all that kind of business, had broken the population up into a lo lots and lots of categories, you know, like Polish women from 38 to 42 and things like that, <laughs> all sorts of categories. And, what, and they claimed to have a method whereby they could tell for any statement that you made how people in those categories were going to react to it, you know, like whether they would like it this much or that much and so on. And then using, you know, some statistical means and computers and stuff, you could determine the impact across these various voting groups of any particular statement you made. And the point of selling this to the Kennedy campaign was that then they could adjust, they could decide what to say uh, on the basis of how you would, it would sort of average out over these various voting groups that they were trying to appeal to. Well, what that means, I mean, that means that a complete understanding that what you say is totally irrelevant to what you're going to do, you know. Well, I think a lot of the population understands that, too. 
And if so, you might just as well vote for whoever makes you feel good, you know, or not vote at all. And so Europe is well behind us on this, but they're catching up. They'll have packaged elections too pretty soon by the time they learn the PR tricks that, and the voter management tricks that we've developed. George Bush is being true? Yes. I see. Usually went the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. That's the same sort of thing. I mean, it's, you know, style is the only thing that counts because they all understand at some level that the substance is elsewhere. And in fact, you know, probably if you sort of look at the last election, it was really a debate over a, there was a, there were policy decisions like should we continue to pour money into military expenditures as a way of revitalizing the economy or should we worry about the debt and so on. That's, those are the real issues, but that's not what people debated. Could you hear? Well, the comment was that uh, I had said a couple of years ago that probably around 82 that would have been, I guess, that uh, the uh, Russian manning of uh, SAM missiles in Syria and Lebanon uh, raised the power, the likelihood of superpower confrontation. In fact, one of the consequences of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, Israel used high, sophisticated American technology to destroy a sort of second-level uh, Soviet air defense system. As part, of, as part of the attack against Syria uh, during, the, during that war. And the Russians responded, as you'd imagine, by moving in a high-level, uh, sophisticated air defense system and sending, American estimates were, about 7,000 Soviet troops to, to, to man them. That number's probably reduced a little bit since. And I, mentioned, I said at the time that that brought the world very close to a superpower confrontation, as indeed it did. Well, since that time, you know, the thing has sort of oscillated up and back. It was, it's been worse in some periods, less in others. During the period when the United States was bombing, when, the, say, the New Jersey, Battleship New Jersey was bombing the hills above Beirut, it was very dangerous. They were probably killing Russians. Uh, the Russians didn't respond that time, but it could have blown up. Uh, at, the, at this particular moment, it happened, the tensions happened to have been relaxed a little. And the reason is that the United States has essentially sort of authorized Syria to try to settle the Lebanon problem by itself. Uh, however, it's just on the border. You know? I mean, sooner or later, Israel's going to have to attack Syria. Uh, and they know it. They're discussing it. Uh, and there are very good reasons for it. Uh, in, a, in the situation of military, the, the crucial issue in the Middle East is whether there's going to be a political settlement. Now, the United States is the main factor in blocking the political settlement. That's another thing that's never discussed here. Uh, the United States has been the major element blocking any political settlement there, and of course Israel too, because it doesn't want a political settlement, but they can do it as long as we back it. Uh, and as long as there's no political settlement and there is a military confrontation, Israel cannot allow any Arab state or any combination of Arab states to begin to approach it in military strength. I mean, that's just on, you know, 
perfectly reasonable grounds because if there is a confrontation it could lose and it could get wiped out. So therefore they're going to have to attack Syria pretty soon. And they're talking about it and they're trying to figure out conditions and so on. And that could very well lead again to a superpower confrontation. That area is the area that's really likely to start the next world war. This incidentally is not just my opinion. It's the opinion of virtually every analyst. So for example, there was a secret Air Force document leaked in this case, whoever asked about these things, leaked to the press, but as far as I know not published in the American press. It was published in the Canadian press called Air Force 2000, which was planning, sort of estimating the likelihood of war up to the year 2000. And they said, like everybody, that the chance of a war breaking out in Europe is very slight. The chance of a war breaking out in the third world is very high, a superpower war. And they said the Middle East is the main area. The Middle East, they said, what they said is this, as long as the Arab-Israeli conflict is not settled by political settlement, the chances for global peace are remote. And the chance of a nuclear war by the year 2000 are quite high. For people who are involved in the disarmament movement, I should say, this ought to be their primary concern, if they're reasonable. It's a lot more, I mean, bad enough to have Star Wars and MX and all that sort of business, but this is much more dangerous. Yeah. For blocking a political settlement? Well, what's the American objective in blocking a political settlement? Well, this is a complicated business. It goes back to what the whole American geopolitical planning has, strategic planning has been for the Middle East. And the concept that has been developed over the years is that, as everywhere in the world, we have the same enemy in the Middle East we have everywhere else, namely the indigenous population. What's called over there radical Arab nationalism, where radical is a technical term. Radical nationalism means the nationalism of anybody who doesn't follow orders. It's opposed to what's called moderate nationalism, which is the nationalism of those who do follow orders. Again, this has nothing to do with political position or anything else. By the late 1950s, again on the basis of secret documents released, we know that the United States had decided, had recognized that to oppose radical Arab nationalism, it would probably be necessary to support Israel as a military force. That position got strengthened through the 60s, especially with Israel's military victory in 67. And Israel began to be understood as what's now called a strategic asset. In the context of the Nixon Doctrine around 1970, this was further reaffirmed. The Nixon Doctrine, you remember, was a recognition that the United States could not police the world by itself. We didn't have the power anymore, relatively, to do policing action everywhere. We needed surrogate states. And in the Middle East, the surrogate states were supposed to be Israel and Iran under the Shah. And American aid to Israel shot up at that point. By 1979, the Shah had fallen and Israel was left as the last surrogate state. American policy has been to try to turn Israel into a militarized state, highly militarized state, with lacking an independent economy, so that it's completely dependent on the United States for survival. It's important for it to be a pariah state, so therefore it can't get support from anyone else. And kind of a pressure, like an attack dog, that we can use when we need it to guarantee rather narrowly conceived American interests in the Middle East, and also to use elsewhere. It's very convenient for a superpower that's trying to run the world by force. It's very convenient for it to have a militarily advanced, technologically advanced 
state dedicated to war with a trained population and nowhere else to look you know no other means of survival other than dependence on us you can use it all over the place we've used it in africa and asia but primarily in latin america so for example the massacres in guatemala in the early part of the reagan administration which were enormous you know thousands if not tens of thousands of people were massacred the reagan administration was blocked from conducting them directly by congressional human rights legislation so it was able to use israel to do it and that's valuable for a superpower uh, and suddenly the people who support this position are called supporters of Israel. That's another nice Orwellian phrase. They're actually supporters of Israel's destruction, you know, because that's what it's leading to. Uh, but uh, that's another story. Uh, that's, I think that's the sort of encapsulated, the thinking behind it. And, of course, that's inconsistent with a political settlement. A political settlement would just mean that Israel would be, you know, something like the Switzerland of the Middle East. But that's no use. We want it to be the pressure of the Middle East. And that requires a military conflict. So we've blocked any political settlements. A political settlement would mean that Israel would have to withdraw to something like the 67 borders. And then it would be, you could have a police, peace, peaceful settlement in those terms, but not with a really powerful military state there that can be, that's in a state of conflict and therefore, you know, re requires military support and is available for military uses. Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't see very well up there. Yeah, could you? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I'm not sure they're all that aware. Uh, but basically, they kind of agree with it. You know, the, the Soviet Union, since in, in the Second World, during the Second World War, the Soviet Union, we don't have their documents, but we can see pretty well what they were up to. The Soviet Union has been in favor of uh, uh, what is called detente. Detente is a sharing in world management on the part of the two superpowers, where each one, I mean, where they are, of course, the junior partner because they're weaker, but where each allows the other to run its own domain, its own domain without too much interference. So we allow them to run their domain, and they allow us to run our domain, most, most of it. And that's essentially what they've been pressing since the late 40s, without too much change, incidentally. A little picking away at the periphery, but uh, essentially that's Soviet policy. We occasionally agree to that, like during the years of detente in the early 70s, we for a period agreed to that, but then for various reasons, mainly having to do, I think, with the domestic economy and the need for intervention, uh, we pulled away from it. It's not very pretty, but it's, you know, you can understand it. Well, I think it's very hard to give an answer to that. I think we ought to, obviously what you try to do is change the policies as much as you can through existing structures. 
and it's hard to predict the extent to which they'll be resistant to that but i think they will be resistant to it but quite independently of that i think we ought to change the internal institutions of our own society anyway because they're oppressive and uh, uh, in many ways intolerable and inhuman so even if it turns out contrary to what i believe that you could make a serious change in foreign policy with our present institutions we ought to be trying to change them anyhow <laughs> Again, Syria, well, it depends what you're talking about. For example, one thing that we ought to overcome, I think, I mean, to, to me it's, I, I was talking about this this afternoon if you were here, but uh, I don't see an enormous difference between uh, a society in which you have to sell, in which you sell yourself to someone and a society in which you rent yourself to someone. I mean, they seem to me approximately equally inhuman. Well, we agree now that we didn't 100 years ago on the first that slavery is wrong. But there's another thing which in the old days used to be called wage slavery, which means that you rent yourself to somebody else in order to survive. It means that control over resources and production and investment is in the hands of a, uh, a separate, a, a particular and rather small group of people, and everyone else has the choice of either dying or rent it, renting themselves to them, more or less on their terms. Uh, and I, that seems to me a totally intolerable form of human life. You know? I mean, there's no reason to accept that any more than there was a reason to accept slavery or feudalism or whatever. Uh, and uh, that, yeah. Now, you know, you, how do you change that? Well, you try to change it through existing institutions. You probably fail, in which case you change the institutions, which are not graven in stone. You know, history hasn't come to an end. sources are there information or yeah uh, well first let, let me say that I think when you read anything including you know what I write uh, specifically you got to remember that everybody's got an axe to grind you know and history isn't physics you know I mean in physics the world pretty much controls what you do and makes you honest you can't lie in physics you'll be caught very quickly uh, but history isn't like that. You know, you can lie for a long time and nobody will ever catch you. Uh, and uh, the, the reason is that, you know, the, the intellectual structure of the field is not such that you got the real constraints of the outside world. So you pick and choose, you know. You pick and choose from a mass of stuff and you pick what you think is important. And there's a lot of subjective judgment and there's a lot of ideology. And that should be understood. What that means is that anything that you read uh, I, I try to be as upfront as I can be about where I stand. There's also something called objectivity, which is a total fraud. And what that means is uh, accepting the ideology of the established system. That's called objectivity. Uh, but uh, you should recognize where somebody's coming from and what they think is important and what their values are and what they're looking for and so on and so forth. And then you've got to compensate for it. And there you just have to rely on your own intelligence and understanding. There's no answer. And that's no matter what you read. Uh, that having been said, uh, there are two points that ought to be made. One point is that the mainstream uh, indoctrination system happens to contain a lot of information. It does for two reasons. For one thing, because there are people who have to know the facts, like business. Business has to know the facts. They've got a lot at stake. You know? 
and so when you read the wall street journal news news reports not the commentary when you read the news reports they're probably pretty accurate and the same is often true in the new york times news reports now you've got to know how to read them you know so you have to read defense of south vietnam as attack against south vietnam you know and things like that uh, but once you understand how to read them you know then you can get a lot of information out of them uh, and of course you've got to read carefully like you have to compare today's lies against yesterday's lies and, you know some or for example you read government denials when you read government denials you're often learning what in fact happened quite typically they will not refer to an event but they'll refer to the government denial of it and then you check back and you know you find it happened and so on so there's all sorts of techniques for for you know penetrating the uh, the major media on top of that there are also you're of course better off if you read widely so if you have if you can say read you know for example the Manchester Guardian even the weekly edition uh, you will learn things about say Central America that you won't read in the American press uh, it's uh, like the British press it's not because Britain is such a wonderful country it's just that they don't happen to be the guys who are committing the crimes in Central America so therefore they can write about them more openly uh, and uh, uh, if you read journals like say The Nation especially people like Alex Coburn uh, you'll learn an awful lot that will never be in the American press or even if it's there nobody's going to understand it you know. uh, but he does and, uh, uh, or you know, in these times and such journals we'll have things that either won't have, like for example uh, terror in El Salvador has been described in these times and in the Guardian uh, but not in the mainstream press that's always been true at the time of the Tonkin Gulf incident for instance when the whole, which was a real turning point in the war a total fraud government claimed that, that American ships had been attacked and that was the start of a big attack in Vietnam the press the mainstream press brought, bought it a hundred percent but the Guardian didn't and told the truth in fact and that turned out to be the truth I mean the American the New York Guardian uh, of course uh, you always have you know you always read those things with skepticism like anything but nevertheless uh, there are times when they'll report things that the mainstream press won't report or they'll understand things that the mainstream press won't understand but ultimately I don't think there's any substitute for uh, just uh, diligence and intelligence and, and skepticism a lot of skepticism now see that's one of the ways in which people are kept ignorant you can have all the information there but only a very small number of people are in a position to put forth the effort to try to figure out what's going on you have to be very privileged you know quite privileged before you can even do this you have to have resources you have to have training you know you have to have time you know you have to have all sorts of things that most people don't have in order even to be able to figure out what's going on that's one reason why the country is sort of safe in having a lot of information available only of very few people are going to be able to get at it and you know that's why you need organization I mean if you can group together in organizations you can do what individuals can't do that's crucial that's one reason why the United States has always attempted to block things like political parties or meaningful organizations in which people can participate because that's the way in which isolated individuals can overcome the lack of resources the only way So go to the next CASA meeting. Sorry, I can't hear.
question I want to volunteer that it is against the U.S. Uh, against the U.S. interest to have a settlement in the Middle East. Do you really think those moves now that we are seeing by Egypt, Israel, and Jordan are orchestrated since they are our guys in a way, or just satisfied the people? Or they are? Well, do I think that the moves by Israel, Jordan, and Egypt are orchestrated? Not really. I think it's sort of a dance, if you like, but I don't think it's orchestrated by the United States. It can't possibly get anywhere. It can't get anywhere because the United States won't tolerate a political settlement, period. So it doesn't matter what anybody does over there because uh, we, we play the decisive role. Uh, and uh, a everybody knows what a political settlement means, and everybody knows that it's been attainable for at least a decade. A political settlement means a two-state settlement on something like the pre-June 67 borders with recognized borders and territorial guarantees and all that sort of business. That's what a political settlement means. It would probably work. It's support it may not be very pretty, you know, it may be very ugly in fact, but it would probably work. Uh, it's supported by virtually everybody in the world. It's supported by the Soviet Union, by Europe, by the non-aligned countries, by the major Arab states. It's been supported by the mainstream of the PLO for about a decade. Uh, it's only blocked by two categories of rejectionists. Uh, one who we call rejectionists because they're the bad guys is, say, Libya, for instance. The other who we don't call rejectionists because it, uh, it's us is the United States and Israel. And the United States and Israel have, in fact, led the rejectionist camp. They refuse this settlement. And Israel can do it because we support them in their refusal. And short of that, there is no political settlement. You know, and uh, there is no... It is impossible for any group in Israel to... Uh, gain any credibility in their own society in favor of a political settlement until they get some support from the United States. The country's just too dependent on the United States. So American opposition to a political settlement, uh, which in fact is crucially centered in the Jewish community and the other so-called pro-Israel communities, uh, that blocks the possibility of any group in Israel arising that could even push for a political settlement there. And so that means there'll be continued conflict, no matter what you know, no matter what negotiations are going on. But you, you can see, I mean, this, again, you know, here, here's another example of the, of the, take, take, look, something quite dramatic happened about a year ago in this regard. Uh, about last April and May, and it tells you something about the press, last April and May, uh, Yasser Arafat proposed explicitly uh, um, negotiations with Israel leading to mutual recognition. He proposed that in, uh, statements that were widely publicized in, in France, in England, in Greece, uh, in Asia, all over the place. Uh, Israel, of course, immediately rejected it. They don't want mutual recognition. Uh, the United States ignored it. Now, what about the press? Well, the press was fascinating in that case. The New York Times and the Washington Post, that is the national press, they didn't even report it. They literally didn't report it. Uh, they refused to run op-eds on it. They refused to publish letters about it. One reader in Detroit wrote a letter to the New York Times in which he said, look, you guys are always dumping on Arafat because he won't negotiate. Here he has announced negotiation. He wants negotiations and mutual recognition. Don't you think that ought to be reported? He actually got a letter back from the foreign editor of the Times, which is very rare. You never get a letter back when you write to a journal, uh, and even and from, particularly from a foreign editor. And I, I have the letter, in fact, I'm publishing it. Uh, the letter is amazing. It says, uh, we are familiar with the statements by Yasser Arafat that you um, uh, pointed out to our attention. 
however they do not represent a significant change in his position which incidentally is true although you wouldn't know that from reading the new york times and then it goes on to say if our fight ever calls for negotiations and mutual recognition you'll read it on the front page of the new york times well that's verbatim what he had called for okay now you just couldn't have a clearer statement saying that at the top editorial level they're not going to allow this to be part of history all right that's the new york times and the washington post the the sort of local quality press like say the boston globe or the philadelphia inquirer or the la times they reported it but they reported it in such a way that you you know you gotta really look hard to find it it's there you know so you could find it if you looked the san francisco herald or herald examiner i think it's called which has the reputation of being at the worst paper in the country had a front page headline an inch and a half high running all over the front page saying arafat to israel let's talk followed by a long upi story which gave all the details well that's the way it should have been treated in the press now how come how do you explain this well i would i think it's very easy to explain uh the point is that the san francisco herald examiner is too unsophisticated to understand what news has to be suppressed so they just make judgments you know on the basis of significance but the new york times understands very well see the new york times you have to understand this somebody's talking about reading the press you see that when you read the new york times you have to recognize the tremendous burden you know the awesome burden that the editors bear namely they are creating history history is what appears in the new york times archives nobody's ever going to look at the san francisco herald examiner archives right but they are going to look at the new york times archives if you're a scholar you know what you do is you go to the new york times archives so it's extremely important to make sure that the right things are there and not the wrong things because that's history and history is important you know so you know again like i say it's kind of an awesome burden you got to respect those guys and uh you can see if you read the press carefully that there's a difference in the way the times treats crucial issues and the way other less sensitive papers do because they have to make sure that history reads the right way so and this just wasn't allowed in history obviously that can't be allowed in history you know so it's out and you'll never find it in a book for instance okay well that's all true we're going to run out of oil i mean you can worry about the timing uh there have been no big surprises in about this i should say for about 30 years by the late 1940s the oil companies who are the only people who have the information apparently knew pretty much where the oil was and how it was going to last and so on and it's kind of interesting to see what they did about it uh one of the things one of the things that's very important to realize when you're studying foreign policy planning or even business planning is that it's all done in the short term people very rarely make long-term decisions that's incidentally inherent in capitalism uh, if you're in a competitive capitalist economy and you make long-term decisions before you've ever gotten to the long term you've been wiped out in the short term you know like if general motors let's say starts putting resources into something that's going to pay off in 10 years they'll be out of business in two years because ford will be working on a two-year plan so the net effect is that planning is almost always very short term and that carries over to state planning too which is largely by corporate executives 
Well, all right, with that background, and so that, has to, that has to do with a lot of things. Like, take the arms race. I mean, anybody who thinks knows that the arms race is going to blow up and we'll all get killed. But that's in the long term. And we only plan for profitability in the short term. That's, in, that's inherent in the system, you know. Uh, well, take the oil business. Uh, it was, everybody in the oil business knew in the early 1950s that American reserves were limited. Uh, the United States, in, the, North, the Western Hemisphere, well, you know, the northern part of the Western Hemisphere was in fact the world's major oil producer until 1968. But everybody knew that's going to run out and that the major oil reserves are in the Middle East. Well, you know, if you were thinking about long-term American security, what you would do is protect American reserves and use Middle Eastern reserves. They did exactly the opposite. What they did is set up, you know, they set up the tax system and all sorts of crazy things so that it was more profitable to exhaust domestic American reserves before turning to Middle Eastern reserves. Well, you know, from the point of view of, say, a 10 or 20 year period, that's crazy. Obviously crazy, you know, in terms of security or anything else. But that's what they did, and they did it because, in fact, various considerations of short-term profitability dictated that. Well, uh, sometime they're going to run out of oil, and nobody's thinking about it because that's too far off. You know, we make we carry out problem we carry out short-term profitability considerations. There's very little conservation going. I mean, there's some. You know, insofar as the economic system forces it, there's conservation, but not rational planning for conservation. You know, it's just Again, profitability considerations impose, market considerations impose a certain degree of conservation. But real long-term planning about sane use of energy, that doesn't exist. And in fact, you know, if we were really, if they were even moderately serious about this, we'd recognize that, you know, while conservation may be okay for the industrial countries, it doesn't mean anything for the industrializing countries. I mean, they have to have resources of energy, the kind that we had during the period of industrialization. And we're not going to let them have it. You know. That's one of the reasons why they probably can never get out of the trap of underdevelopment. So these are, yeah, I think you're quite right. That's a very serious long-term problem. But until there's rational planning for human use in the industrial countries, it'll just be irrelevant. Will you happen to know if it's true that somebody found a way <clears throat> to turn water into hydrogen through other than fusion reactions? I've heard things like that, but I assume they're untrue. I, I don't, I'm not a big expert on it, but I, I think it's very unlikely that you get outright deception inside the scientific community. Not because scientists are such wonderful people, but because, as I said before, the world doesn't let you get away with it. But one of the fields in which you have to be honest is physics. Can't get away with it otherwise. So I tend to be suspicious about such things. But, uh, yeah. I was just wondering. You have seem to have a lot of healthy skepticism and a very cynical attitude, and it's not unfounded. And that's and it goes back in history a long way with a lot of documentation. And I wanted to know what it is that you counteract it with. What do I counteract it yes. with? Personally, you mean? Or what do I counteract the skeptic? Well, things like this. You know, I mean, I think what's encouraging is that there are lots and lots of people out there who really want to do something to change things. And, you know, what could be more encouraging than that? You know. Are there enough to bring about change? Well, you know, that's not the kind of thing you speculate about. That's the kind of thing you try to do something about. I don't 
let's let's see you know let's try to make there be more people i mean look if you think about it over a longer period the change is very striking for example when the peace movement began in the sixties somebody mentioned before reminded me today that i was very pessimistic then and in fact i was i used to spend my evenings going to talk uh... in the homes of people who would bring together two or three neighbors because that's the biggest group you could get you know or we'd set up meetings in churches where we bring together like six topics you know vietnam venezuela iran you know etc etc hoping that out of that collection of topics we could get enough people so that the people there would outnumber the organizers you know that was going on as late as nineteen sixty five i should say and then blew up you know now the thing is totally different you know now everywhere you go there's lots and lots of people the level of sophistication and understanding is way beyond what it was in the sixties and also i think the level of commitment like look take the civil disobedience in last week on the pledge of resistance uh, there were in boston a, it's very hard to get information around the country because one of the lessons the press learned in the late sixties was not to report demonstrations since that has a stimulative effect if you think you're alone you may not do things if you know everybody's doing it everywhere else you'll do it too so that stuff is never reported anymore but uh... in boston but you know locally you can see what happens so it doesn't matter in boston about I think probably 600 people or so were arrested in a sit-in in the uh, federal building over the embargo. And I think that that's the largest civil disobedience action in ever that I remember in Boston. Uh, well, you know, that was over an embargo, after all. It wasn't over B-52 bombing. Now, that's pretty impressive, you know. Uh, it means that there's a tremendous difference between, it was a, you know, in fact, the thing never got to that point during the 60s. And, you know, that means that there's been a big change. So are there enough people? Well, you know, there are a lot more than there were. And I think there will be a lot more yet to come if people work on it. Hi. Um, you mentioned, you've talked a lot about um, the spectrum of opinions that are dictated by the media and also um, objectivity and, and the... the uh, <laughs> fact that it doesn't really actually exist. I wanted to talk just for a minute and have you address the issue of emotionalism, which is a double-sided issue. I thought you were going to go into it when you mentioned Vietnam and the, the retrospectives that are going on right now. You see a lot in the media right now about um, honoring the Vietnam veterans, and I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression that I was not honoring the Vietnam veterans. I have family members that were killed in Vietnam. And, but at the same time, I wanted to point out that that is something that's going on now, and I've noticed an uprise of it in the last couple of years, that um, it's, it's okay to be a hero now. In fact, it's really the good thing to do is to go out there and um, kill people in other countries. And on the other side of that coin of emotionalism is the fact that it's very much frowned upon being emotional is very frowned on, upon. The objective papers, the ones that go into the archives, are the ones that are trusted by people who are moderate people. Um, people who are related to me, family members, have told me that um, Israel and Israelis are um, unreasonable and irrational, and that's why they are so militaristic. They've also told me that people who come from Latin America are too emotional, and that's why they have so many problems down there. And I feel like that that's something that's supported in our press, too. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, uh, first of all, let me... The, I mean, I don't think there's obviously nothing wrong with being emotional. You know, you'd be you're dead if you... You can't look at 
things that are happening and not react to them emotionally but of course you also have to try to be rational it's there's no use giving the weapon of rationality to the enemy it's too strong a weapon you know so yes obviously well you know in fact Hume once said that reason should be the slave of the passions meaning you start with your emotional commitments but then you act rationally to try you know within those commitments that's sort of right I think as far as the you know various societies of the world are concerned I suppose the United States and maybe sectors of Khomeini's Iran are the craziest societies that exist so I mean for example it's very hard to find anything anywhere in the world outside of maybe you know Khomeini's fanaticism that corresponds to mainstream American intellectual life I mean that quite seriously you know I mean a place where a president can get up and say that the destruction is mutual so we owe Vietnam no debt that the educated community that can hear that is kind of off the wall you know no point in talking to them anymore or a place or in fact you know you are a place where the president can get up and say as he did last week that Nicaragua poses a military threat so severe that we have to have a national security emergency and people don't break out in hysterical laughter that country is somewhere off to the lunatic side of Iran you know I don't know of anything like that stuff anywhere else in the world you know it's just totally crazy you know and so among American educated intellectuals I mean the concept of rationality is irrelevant because fanaticism is much too high you know jingoist lunacy is much too high and so on so and all this talk about moderates and you know the Latin Americans you know I think almost any Latin American peasant understands more about the United States than almost any political science department so that's I'm not joking I mean that seriously there was another point that you made which I forgot I was talking about the Vietnam retrospect oh yeah the Vietnam veterans well you know first of all I don't think that I mean should you honor people for doing what they're sort of forced to do I think should pity them I don't see why I should honor them exactly the people you should honor are people who showed particular courage like resistors but of course they're not going to be for obvious reasons because people in power don't want resistance what they want is obedience so they're going to honor obedience now that doesn't mean that you should revile people who did what they were forced to do you should pity them you know you should support them recognize that they have a tough life and support them and so that's what happened mostly during the peace movement this stuff that's going on now about you know this this sort of a kind of hysterical business about you know like what's going on in Santa Barbara if you read that where they're having a big revival session where they organize thousands of people and veterans come up and they talk about how terribly they were treated by this or that hippie and so on most of that stuff is invented in my opinion or if it wasn't invented it may have happened I'm not saying people didn't have the experiences but it was outside the peace movement peace movement was very clear about this the peace movement was always very and those of you who are say my age and so on will remember this the peace movement was always very clear about the fact that the soldiers were victims and nobody was calling them baby killers when they came back at least nobody who was connected with the peace movement now you know there may have been all sorts of marginal peripheral things but most of this stuff is being concocted and built up and as a kind of a manufactured hysteria for essentially jingoist purposes well you know I don't think there's much I don't know really I mean I suspect that see I don't think 
See, it's very hard to see. In fact, you take a look at the people. I, I don't believe about the soldiers' guilt. The guilt was not the soldiers. In fact, again, let me say that the well, see, it's very hard. Look, if you're, it's okay when you're sitting here, you know, to talk about what you should do in the field. But if you're out, you know, trekking through the jungle, and there's an eight-year-old kid there who may kill you, it's hard not to kill him first. You know, now that was always understood. Uh, and in fact, again, if you take a look at the peace movement literature, you'll see that there was very little discussion of things like, say, Mi Lai. Like, for example, I wrote an article on Mi Lai, and I mentioned it in about one line. What I talked about is what's happening in Washington. That's where the criminals are. You know, the guys who are out in the field, there's nothing much they can do. You know, it's very hard under, you know, conditions of combat to make discriminations. Even, yeah, well, maybe, maybe. I, th I think there's a lot of manufactured hysteria going on. In fact, I was talking to a Swedish reporter uh, a week or two ago who was going around the country. Uh, she was, uh, and she went to these Santa Barbara sessions in particular, which are the major ones. She told me it reminded her of the Nuremberg rallies in the 1930s under Hitler, you know. And I think that's going on. There's a lot of manufactured hysteria and, uh, uh, you know, stab in the back business and so on and so forth, and that's no joke, you know. Uh, I think one should be very cautious about, uh, uh, you know, about, uh, I think one should understand this. It's part of the way of building up more jingoist hysteria. How do you feel about Berkeley and the well, uh, Berkeley, for example, the question is about Berkeley going for Reagan. Berkeley was always a very conservative town. I, was in, I taught in Berkeley in 66 and 67, which was the peak of things. And the, the, a lot of young people were involved in the movement, but you know, not wealthy professionals. Berkeley is now a yuppie town. You know, it's wealthy professionals. Why shouldn't they vote for Reagan? You know, he's the guy who stuffs their pocket by stealing from the people down in the flats. You know. So, you know, but on the other hand, uh, my daughter's a student at Berkeley, in fact. And nothing's getting reported, but she's been sleeping out on the steps of Sproul Hall lately on the anti-apartheid demonstrations. And uh, she told me the other day that about 7,000 students were involved in a meeting there. It's quite a lot. You know. I've, I've given talks in Berkeley in the last couple of years. There's always a lot of people interested. I mean, you know, the, Berkeley did change. And I think it, it's kind of a, it's, it's not an accidental change. I mean, I think it was manipula a partly manipulated change. There's been an off uh, young people have been subjected to a tremendous propaganda campaign in the 70s, and it's had some effect. I mean, the 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 uh, what was considered most frightening in the 60s was the fact that young people acted on honest impulses, and that's scary. So one thing that was done in the 70s was to concoct this uh, narcissism story. You know, one of the big PR jobs in the 1970s was to try to convince everybody that you're narcissistic. You know, you don't care about anybody else. Uh, of course, everybody, every individual knew it wasn't true of that person. But, you know, each person knows it's not true of myself, you know. But what you're told is the whole culture is narcissistic, you're only supposed to be interested in yourself, and so on and so forth. Therefore, everyone feels, well, I must be weird, you know, so I better play that game too. And the net effect is, uh, 
you know, that does become a cultural pattern, but I don't think it's really deep-seated in any sense. Next time around. Do you see mass demonstrations for civil disobedience having any effect aside from teaching the government to do things more deviously, more secretly? Well, after all, that's a big effect. As far as the peace pressure, the administration is much tougher and meaner, and that's not because the objective situation has changed. Central America is a much more... Vietnam is kind of a peripheral interest. The United States could give up trying to conquer Vietnam and nothing much would change in the global scene. Central America is the major area designated for American robbery and has been for a long time. It's not just a matter of robbing their resources. I think the United States is planning to 